right, well, let's go ahead and get started uh, tonight. Um, we're going to pick up over in Isaiah chapter 11 <clears throat> and uh, talk about the spirit of might uh, tonight. And um, uh, again, talking about uh, Christ, we're going to see obviously uh, some connections. Um, this, uh, this spirit that we're talking about in this specific passage uh, is uh, pretty important because we see a link of uh, how it starts to show that Jesus Christ is God, uh, that uh, He is uh, um, that He is the Lord, and He's uh, specifically um, uh, referenced in the, these passages that we're going to go through. We're going to see some uh, area for believers, and uh, that uh, we receive His might and uh, the importance behind that, and how we go about doing that. But let's uh, go ahead and start off with a word of prayer. And uh, we'll get going tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for the time. Thank you again for an opportunity to be here. Thank you again for uh, your word that uh, continues to uh, give us that guidance and direction in your Holy Spirit to teach us. And Lord, we just pray that uh, tonight our hearts would be very open and receptive to your word, that uh, we would receive it with joy and gladness, and that, uh, Lord, it would just uh, begin to Bring fruit in our life as we learn more about you and uh, more about uh, what you've done for us. And uh, again, Lord, uh, um, also seeing some of the uh, the, the cautions uh, that are there. But uh, again, Lord, I just pray that uh, you'd be with me and speak through me tonight. Uh, Lord, just um, pray that all of this would be pleasing and honoring unto you. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in Isaiah chapter 11, in verse 2, we've been talking about these uh, seven spirits that are listed. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And uh, we are talking right now uh, about the spirit of might. Um, that's uh, uh, something that is pretty important uh, in this day and age. Uh, if uh, And I, trust me, I can kind of relate uh, if you've ever had a situation where you just have not had that strength and that physical ability and that physical power to do certain things, it really can, I mean, you can tell how hard it is in your, you know, in that day to day activity and the life and what we do and, and, and how we go about doing it. But when we start talking about might and, and there are a lot of references uh, in uh, scripture, and I, there's no way to, to go through in a short time that we have to exhaust those. But uh, one of the things that we consistently see is we see always this talk about the Lord's might and uh, his, his mightiness, uh, uh, if you will, and uh, what, uh, what he does and uh, how he demonstrates it. And one of the key things about might is, you know, when you define it, is it's just simply strength, power and ability. And when we realize that might as one of these spirits here is one of those ones that is clearly demonstrated by Christ. And we're going to see a few passages about that. But when we start talking about uh, this spirit, it is one that is very, uh, you know, demonstrated in the works that the Lord does. So I want to start off with uh, talking about over in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. There's several passages here in Deuteronomy that re reference this, but we're going to start off with Deuteronomy chapter 8 and take a look at verse uh, 
uh, 16 and 17. And we find that uh, the Lord is giving some reminders here, obviously through Moses, uh, giving some reminders about uh, uh, where Israel came from and uh, reminding this next generation that's getting ready to go into the land uh, a few things. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why it's important to realize and kind of, if you will, uh, think about this word might and this, uh, um, and what, uh, what, uh, God's talking about over in Isaiah chapter 11 is it's, it's something to really meditate on. Um, it's, it's something when we begin to realize, uh, exactly how weak we are and how mighty God is, it really puts things into perspective. When you take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, again, this is a reminder for the nation of Israel. And if you're thinking about something like this, the Israelites would have, you know, not gone towards sin if they had been thinking about what God had done for them. And in verse 16, it says, uh, talking about uh, uh, what the Lord has done, who fed thee in the wilderness. He fed them, obviously, uh, with manna. But we know what happened when they got the manna and they had it for a little bit. What did they say? We loathe this light bread. They weren't content. And again, one of the main problems that you'll see in, in, a, in a Christian's life is uh, malcontent and unthankfulness. And those are things that are very, very, very dangerous. That's why Paul warns us, uh, um, you know, food and raiment, be content. Uh, the, the, uh, unthankfulness that is mentioned as part of, if you will, the last times that we see. And in this day and age, we see that. We see people are malcontent. They're malcontent with who they are. They're malcontent with their situations. They're malcontent with, uh, uh, how much money they make. They're malcontent with the government. They're malcontent with, uh, churches. They're mal, I mean, they're malcontent with a lot of stuff. But when we begin to realize that it also is related to unthankfulness, which the nation of Israel was expressing, we find that they didn't remember that stuff. You know, in the wilderness, they they just kind of forgot what what God had done for them. So here he is reminding this next generation, saying, hey, I fed you. I fed you with manna. And in verse 16, they continue on, who he says, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee, to do the uh, um, good at thy latter end, that thou uh, that thou say in thine heart, my power and uh, the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. This is something that's very very clear. I mean, here he is talking about uh, um, what uh, uh, um, in, in verse uh, uh, verse seventeen, talking about the might of a person's own hand. Well, it was God's work that brought the manna. They didn't bring it. They didn't create it. You know, people have tried to recreate what manna tastes like. You're not going to. Why? Because it's not being, I mean, it's not being distributed right now. I mean, you're just not going to find manna. Um, you know, there's, there's bread that's out there. There's light bread that's out there. But I guarantee you, you know what? You're not going to get something that's even close to that. And if you notice, he brings that manna to them for a specific purpose. It was to humble them. It was to humble them. They're in a wilderness. They did not have enough. I mean, look, if you've got a million plus people in a, in a, in a general population area in a wilderness, you're going to be really pressed to find some food for them. 
I mean, even if you wipe out the entire deer population, that's still not going to keep them alive. I mean, you still have to figure out something some other way. So what did the Lord do? The Lord provided. The Lord provided for them. And it was a, it was a mighty work that he did to them. But here they're, you know, just kind of coming out of the gate. I wanted to, to point this out that many times people think it is of their own might that they're doing these things. You know, um, it, it, it's common. You know, pastors will talk about how great a work they've created. Well, it's the Lord that adds to the church daily. I mean, we see that from Scripture. We see what the Lord does, and we see how the Lord works in people's hearts. And, you know, I understand the, the, the work that's there as a pastor and with, with, you know, the responsibilities that are there. And the, but, but eventually, it's, it's the Lord's. It's, it's not Ken Stewart's. It's what the Lord is doing. And we've got to come to that conclusion. And here he's saying, look, I don't want you to to go around saying that you did it on your own power, that you did it under your own might. And and this is how, how you brought things together. But, you know, again, it's because of the might of God. Because if you go over to chapter 9, the next chapter over, chapter 9, and take a look at verse 26, here again he's, you know, uh, bringing to to light some things. And he says in verse 26 of Deuteronomy 9, I prayed therefore unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, destroy not thy people and thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I mean, again, there is absolutely no way that a bunch of bricklayers were going to be able to take on the, the Egyptian army with chariots, superior, if you will, battle technology, uh, superior fighting skills, uh, things of that nature. So what does the Lord do? The Lord did something mighty. And we see that over and over and over and over again for Israel. And that's why, you know, you, you read through the Bible and you go, man, how could they be so obtuse? But the fact is, is we often are the same. We don't see what God does every single day in our life, and we disregard it sometimes. So we have to be very careful with that. If you jump down to verse 29 of the same chapter, he says, Yet they are thy people and thine inheritance, which thou brought us out by thy mighty power and by thy stretched out arm. And here's Moses again making a mention of what has happened and how the Lord has taken care of this. How the Lord took care of them at the Red Sea. How the Lord brought them out of Egypt with the spoils of Egypt, all the gold and all of the, uh, uh, the, the, the precious, uh, uh, treasures that were brought forth, uh, they were just given. They didn't have to lift a sword. And here they are spoiling an entire nation because the nation's like, get out of here. We, we, we value our nation. We don't want you here anymore. And obviously, you know, Pharaoh pursues them with the intent of slaughtering them. But the end result is, is his army is destroyed. It's drowned in the Red Sea. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'll just say, you know, from an archaeological standpoint, people are always arguing, well, it's not really the Red Sea, and it was some sort of marshy little ground, and they just got stuck, and they couldn't advance, and things like that, and there was a, some sort of pathway that was there that the chariots couldn't get on, but the, the Israelites could walk across, and, you know, it was some sort of flash flood, and I'm like, no, it's the Red Sea. 
I mean, you know, just just take it. What God says is that it was the Red Sea. They came to the Red Sea. They crossed it on, you know, dry ground. And the uh, the walls of water cascaded down and collapsed on the armies of Pharaoh and drowned them. You know, their wheels were broken off and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, you get some historians saying, well, that's not an actual account. And I'm like, oh, well, you were there? Did you bring a photograph? I mean, did you, did you, you know, videotape it and post it on your TikTok or what? I mean, it's, let's, let's get realistic here. They, they just try to discount it. But what Moses says here twice is it's his mighty hand. It's his mighty power that did this. And this is one of the key things that we have to remember is, you know, when we're talking about mightiness of God, we're talking about his power, his strength, and his ability. We are limited in our abilities. We're limited in our abilities. When's the last time you teleported from one place to another? Yeah, it hasn't happened yet, you know. Uh, it just hasn't occurred. I mean, how many of us can go through walls like Jesus Christ did? We're not there yet. How many of us, uh, um, you know, can can uh, call fire down from heaven? Probably none of us have done that yet. I mean, all of these things that we realize, those are all abilities that God is is uh, giving to people and God is doing. And this is why we have to focus on his might, his might, because we don't have that ability and we don't have that strength and we don't have that power. But God does. God does. Take a look at the book of Jeremiah. Let's go over to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. And again, talking about the might of the Lord. And again, the the reason I want to approach it in a general sense like this before we start looking at some of the uh, specific references to Christ's might is again to create this, uh, you know, connection between the might of the Lord and the might of Christ. And how they are the same. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, and take a look at verse 19. Jeremiah 32, 19. He says, uh, great in counsel, talking about the Lord. Let's back up here. Verse 18, thou showest loving kindness to unto thousands and recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, look at that, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of uh, the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now, this this passage, uh, you know, these two verses are, are, are very much loaded with some doctrinal application. Uh, we see here, obviously, the Lord is going to recompense uh, um, you know, when somebody is doing evil, there's going to be consequences. He's going to judge accordingly. He's going to uh, handle it the way that he's going to handle it. And again, that gives us a great comfort knowing that the Lord is going to take care of it. You know, we can sit there and fret and worry and, and like, oh, you know, uh, uh, the governor said he's not going to run. Who's going to run? And if it's going to be this guy, oh, it's going to make it much worse. And blah. We can sit there and fret over the evildoers and we can fret over, you know, the, the situations that are going on. But it doesn't get us anywhere. All it does is gets us off of, you know, our minds off of Christ and on something else. 
But what we find here is God gives this reminder saying he's going to take care of those that commit iniquity. He's going to handle the situation. He's going to take care of it. Those that have rejected him, those that have pushed him away, he is going to take care of it. Why is that? Because he is the mighty God. That is his name. That is his name. You know, you ever have some of those people come knock on door and ask if you know the name of G- the name of God? And they're, they're, they're looking for, do you know the name Jehovah? And I'm like, okay, that's one name out of many, 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 many names. And it says right here that his name is what? The mighty God, the Lord of hosts. And he's even called in the very first part of it, the great. Just, just the great. That's it. One word, the great. That just would completely confuse them. They would just get off track and they wouldn't know what to do. But it's here, it's saying that's who he is. And why is he mighty? Because of the mighty works that he does. You know, some people can do work, but it also shows that they don't have ability. If I was to try to say, you know, rebuild a transmission, um, it's going to show that I have no ability to do it. I might be able to put the parts back where they came from, but is it going to be necessarily a running transmission when it's all said and done? I doubt it. I don't have that ability. I, I just don't have that knowledge. It's just not there. Um, understanding that, uh, it would be done as a work, but I probably wouldn't get paid for it. But when God does his works, his works are mighty. Why? Because there is a demonstration of strength, power, and ability. Because, again, with men it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So we, we, we understand this about his might. Take a look at the next chapter in chapter 33 of Jeremiah and take a look at verse, um, verse uh, 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 3 here. Um, talking about, uh, you know, in, in just, you know, for context in verse one, moreover, the word of the Lord came into Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison. And here he is getting another prison message saying, thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, uh, the Lord that formed it to establish it. <laughs> Excuse me. The Lord is his name. Call unto me and I will answer thee and I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. There are some mighty things that, that, that is, they're very difficult for us to comprehend. You know, I, I talk about things like quantum mechanics and, uh, you know, those type of theories and you start getting into, uh, a lot of that, uh, um, very scientific detail. I will, I will tell you this. There's, you know, there, there are some things that those scientists, as smart as they are, they don't know. They don't know. Uh, I, I, again, I love it when, you know, they, they just kind of get humbled very quickly. Uh, they don't receive the, the, the humbling very well though. And they try to lift themselves up with pride again. But again, one of the things that they were talking about, and I was watching one time, uh, uh, something talking about, uh, the theory of everything, which they, uh, very quickly revised to what's called string theory. If you've heard about it, 
And uh, basically what they're talking about with string theory is, is they wanted to know what were the atoms made of, or excuse me, the, the, if you will, the, the, the particles that the atoms are made of, all of those electrons and neutrons, what are they made of? Let's go, you know, go, let's go further down the subatomic, uh, uh, you know, tunnel and try to find what these things are made out of. And, and they came up with this theory of this, that these things are made up of these, if you will, like rubber bands and strings that vibrate at different frequencies and essentially sing, and they create uh, all of these various different uh, elements and particles and so on and so forth. And it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. Well, what are those strings made of? (laughs) What causes them to vibrate? Who told them to vibrate at that frequency? I mean, you start asking those questions and they just go, well, we don't know yet. <laughs> no, you don't, you're not going to know. You're, you're just not going to know. Because again, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if one time that they created the, you know, the most powerful electron microscope they could see so beyond that, that when they, they look into that, they'd probably see Jesus going, hi, I'm here. By me, all things consist is what the Bible says, you know. I mean, it's it's just kind of amazing that they can't see that. But at the same time, you used to look at it on a very much macro scale with the universe. And if they were to get on the quote-unquote other side of the universe, what would they see? Well, there would be God going high. But here we are looking at this, and he's telling, he's saying, look, if you seek me, and this is an interesting, if you call unto me, he says, I will answer. I love that because it goes right in line with uh, over there in uh, Romans chapter 10. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Right? There's salvation there. And, and I will tell you this. There's a lot of great mighty works that we see. I mean, we can see things with, uh, uh, with, with like I said, you know, at the, the, the subatomic level and the grand scale. We live in one of the most beautiful parts of this country. And I grew up in Boise. Uh, Boise is, um, has one color. It's called brown all year. It's brown. Any trees that were brought, you know, that you see are not native trees because they don't have native, they didn't have native trees. They were all imported at some point in time. So, you know, it's, it's just this brown colored area. Yeah, there's some trees up in the mountains, but you got to go a little bit ways. But it's just, you know, I, I grew up there. So you come to this area, and I remember when we moved to this area, uh, my family, we were like, wow. We saw, like, all these cherry blossoms because it was right around this time of year that that we moved over to here. And we saw everything in bloom, and you could smell the flowers in the air. It was just a beautiful sight coming from Boise. Actually, it was via Spokane, but that was a totally different story. Now that thing was just white constantly from the snow during that winter. But, but there we are, we get to see some amazing things that God's done, but the greatest work that has ever been done is work on the cross and the power of his resurrection. That, that right there, that that's the greatest work that you will ever see. And when you call upon the name of the Lord and he shows you that work and he shows you salvation and he demonstrates to you 
His love, and I mean, it, it is an amazing thing to think about. And here he is talking about, he says, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. It's fun learning new things. It's fun learning new things, to a degree, depending on what you're learning. You know, there's some things that, yeah, will, you know, they're as boring as watching paint dry. But I don't think, you see, if God was to show you something, it would be boring. This is one of the verses that I use to kind of point out and say, hey, if you're going to, you know, read your Bible, you need to call unto the Lord first. He'll, 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 he'll show you and he'll demonstrate and he'll show you things that you didn't know even existed in this word. He'll show you things that just, you know, as you've read it through a hundred times or more and then you go back and you read it again and go, hey, I didn't see that. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. Now, granted, he gives it to us as we need it. And sometimes some of the things that are in here are a little too much for us and he doesn't reveal it to us. Till later. And he did that with the disciples. Uh, does the same thing with us. But what we see here is we see the mighty works that God does, the mighty things. So let's start taking a look at what Jesus Christ is about. And let's go over to the book of Psalms and see some messianic prophecies about him. In Psalm chapter 24, Psalm chapter 24, as it starts talking about Jesus Christ, uh, one of the things that I wanted to point out is, you know, you, you go over there in Joshua, um, he sees this man and he is the captain of the, the Lord's host, right? And he sees this individual and uh, uh, he obviously, when he doesn't recognize and doesn't know who he is, takes out his sword, he's ready to fight. But when that captain, Jesus, reveals himself, what does he do? He falls down to the ground and worships. So we know it wasn't an angel. Because angels won't receive worship. They won't receive worship. But Jesus Christ does. And very clearly, he is referred to as a captain. Why? Because he will be coming back one day as a captain and as a king. And what we find here in verse uh, um, in verse 8 of uh, Psalm chapter 24, it says, Who is this king of glory? Notice it's capital K. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now this is, this is an important thing. Because if you start thinking about the Lord mighty in battle, there is a big battle that is set to come. There's a few of them that are set to come. And you've got Armageddon and then you've got the one at the end of the millennial reign. The end of the millennial reign is a little bit different. There's just, uh, you know, fire comes down and destroys uh, the armies that surround Jerusalem, but uh, when the Lord comes back in, uh, in you know, at uh, his second coming, he's coming, and he's coming with a sword in his mouth, and he's coming to execute justice, and uh, these individuals think they're going to keep him from coming, and they're going to find out the hard way that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There's going to be a slaughter. It's going to be a slaughter. And it's going to be amazing to think, to, to sit there and think about that. You know it's God coming back. It's not like you're battling a UFO. It's not like you're fighting a normal army. It's God and these people think with whatever weapons they were, they're going to have at that point in time, whether it's an M1A1 or A2 or A3 Abrams or whatever it may be or, you know, some sort of AK-47, you know, 
that they're grateful they're going to try to keep them away with, yeah, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. He's mighty in battle. You know what? You don't want a weakling in battle. You really don't. You don't want somebody that's a coward. You don't want somebody that's afraid. You don't want somebody that uh, has no strength and has no ability uh, to fight and has, it doesn't have that, if you will, uh, mental capacity to do it. You're in battle. You want the guy next to you as charged and as amped as you are to take care of the issue. You don't want him psychotic. You don't want him off, you know, bubble off plum. You want the guy methodical, knowing what he's doing, following the training, following the tactics, doing what he's meant to do, right? You want that guy. You want that guy. You don't want some, you know, 70-pound, skinny-as-a-rail weakling where if you get shot and he's got to drag your carcass across, you know, <laughs> you you want somebody that's going to drag you. You want somebody like Mike Perry that's going to just grab you and, and haul you like a piece of steel across there, you know, just flip you over and just walk, you know. He's walking along, toting him and firing at everything, you know, stuff like that. They, they, that's the type of stuff that you want. But when we start realizing how mighty God is in battle, let's put it into the spiritual sense. Let's talk about the battle and the fight that we're in over in Ephesians chapter 6. Day after day after day after day after day. And sometimes multiple times a day. And guess what? You want, as it says here, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. You want him fighting your fights for you. You want him winning those victories. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, well, I'm, I've been trying to get victory over sin. I've been trying to get victory over sin. And, and it kind of gets to a point of, okay, well, I get that, and I understand that concept. I understand what you're talking about, but let's change our words a little bit. You want the Lord to get the victory over the sin. Because we can't do it ourselves. He's the one that spoiled principalities and powers. He's the one that, uh, you know, has the keys to death and hell now. He, 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 he's the one that's mighty in battle. We're there. Our job? Stand. Stand. And, 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 and again, that's something that we have to begin to think about. This is why it becomes so important that Christ is if you will, the preeminent in our life. Because he's the one that's going to lead us into that battle. He's the one that's going to uh, uh, bring that victory. He's the one that knows the better tactics. He's the one that knows how to fight. He's the one that is, is, is capable of defeating the enemy. And, and, you know, that's something that's really important for us. Take a look at chapter 45 of the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 45. Again, very messianic in, in nature, talking about a second coming. And in Psalm chapter 45 and in verse 3, 
It says, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Now, this is an interesting thing. Now, again, I, I'd love to get into a lot more detail about it, but we're not teaching Revelation. You go over to the book of Revelation and you see Jesus Christ being described and he's got writing on his thigh. Um, and here he is talking about strapping a sword to the thigh. Do you see that connection? What's the word of God called? Two-edged sword. And it's made of writing words. He's got a name, you know, that's written there. Look, that's not a coincidence. Because I'll tell you, one of the things that's mighty is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And considering He is the Word of God, we begin to see some of that connection. And, and, And again, very clearly here, He's saying, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. He's acknowledging that he is most mighty, the most mighty. Anybody in here like Oreos? You can admit it. You can say, I like Oreos. They're, they're bad for you, I know. You know, you eat one of them and you balloon up like, you know, with 50 pounds. But I get it. I get it. Oreos are good. Okay? So you get those Oreos, and, and they've got those thin Oreos. You ever had the thin Oreos? Yeah. So you need a regular Oreo. Or the double stuff. And then they get the Mega. Now they've got one out there that's called the most. Yeah. I'm like, this thing is, I mean, you know, it's like this thick of just the filling. Just, <laughs> just the filling. And it's called the most. I mean, you really can't get much bigger than that. I mean, unless you just like, just take a jar of the insides of it and say, here's Oreo filling, eat this. Which isn't that bad, but, you know, it's called the most. Why is that? Because it's got the most. It's the biggest, if if you will. It's the best. It's, it's, it's the top. And here he is calling him, oh, most mighty. Above everything else, God's might is what is important. And this is why it becomes so important to talk about the spirit of might and the might that is in Christ, the might that is in in the Lord, is because he is most mighty. There is nothing that is going to compare to it. There may be things that look mighty. There may be things that kind of sort of seem like they're mighty or may have a might to it, but it does not compare to the might of God. Especially when we're starting to talk about, in connection with this, the sword. The sword. This is why the nation of Israel, when Jesus Christ showed up, uh, they weren't expecting him to show up as the Savior. They were expecting him to show up as this guy. That was going to come and execute some justice and, you know, finally put the Romans down and Israel was going to get their land back and everything else like that. That's what they were thinking. The Pharisees, they were like, no, we're going to do it ourselves, which didn't work. Didn't work. It brought more bondage. People then became entangled in legalism. And, and here, here, here you've got the Lord demonstrating this, demonstrating his might. He's demonstrated it to the nation of Israel. He has very much demonstrated it in my life. 
Now, first and foremost, as I said, he saved my soul. There's might being demonstrated. I couldn't do it. You couldn't save yourself. So who's more mighty, him or you? Well, it's God. It's God. Take a look at Psalm chapter 68. Again, another messianic uh, reference here. Psalm chapter 68, and in verse 33, back up just here a little bit, uh, in verse uh, 31, it says, Princes shall come out of Egypt, Ethiopia shall soon uh, see, uh, shall soon stretch out her hands unto God, sing unto God, ye uh, kingdoms of the earth, sing uh, sing praises unto the uh, unto the Lord. Uh, Selah, verse thirty three. It says, "To him that rideth upon the heavens of heavens, which were of old, lo, he doth send out his voice, and that a mighty voice." You ever go through and read the Psalms and you just go, "Wait, wait, hold on a second." Rideth upon the heaven of heavens. Who's coming back riding on a horse in the sky? You ever ride a horse? It's fun. I like riding horses. I don't like caring for horses. I like riding horses. There's a big difference, okay? You know, um, my again, favorite one that I ever rode on. Big, old, I mean, Belgian. Had blonde mane and just red. It was, it was beautiful. This thing, when it was riding on the, it was up at Ocean Shores. It was riding on the the beach, and that thing just thundered across the the sand. It was, I mean, it was amazing. I put Amy on a ex racehorse, an Arabian, and she's on this thing, and she wanted to go a little bit faster, so she just gives it one of those little ha, you know, with her heels in the side, and that thing's like, oh, okay. Zero to 60 in like, you know, three seconds. And she's like, she's got, she's holding on for dear life. (laughs) You know, and I'm like, "Uh oh, this isn't good. Because if she can't stop that horse and here I am, you know, chasing after her and I'm chasing after her in this big old horse, just thundering. Just, I mean, I mean, I could just imagine that thing being armored and, and just having like a bunch of those charge you. You know how terrifying that would be? Man, you'd be scared out of your mind. And, 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 but here, this horse that Jesus is riding on is doing that in the sky. I don't know how. That's what the Lord does. It's just an amazing thing to think about. And here he is coming back like that, and he's talking about this specific passage about how he's riding upon the heaven of heavens, which were old. But the thing that I want to focus on is that where he starts talking about he does send out his voice and that a mighty voice. You go over to the book of Revelation, what's coming out of his mouth? A sword. Well, what's a sword? A word of God. Well, word of God is also his voice. It's a mighty voice. This is why we go back to this and we go, look, you you want guidance and direction in your life. Pick this up and read it. Get counsel. Mighty counsel. It's going to be found in the word of God. Study it. You know, pray, meditate, memorize. All of those things that we always are, 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 you know, saying to do. 
Why? Because there's might in this. There's might in his voice. Here he is as the word of God, this again being messianic, speaking of Jesus Christ, talking about his second coming, who is also known as the word of God, has a voice that is mighty. We start seeing those things connect and start fitting together very clearly. Take a look at what he says um, over in Psalm chapter 89. Now, when Stephen is being stoned, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Christ, right? He sees Jesus Christ. And where does he see Jesus Christ? Standing at the right hand of God. Book of Ephesians talks about how we are seated in heavenly places with Christ, and Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God. Psalm 89, verse 3. Um, excuse me, is that right? That doesn't look right. Verse 13, there we go. It says, uh, thou hast a mighty arm, talking about the Lord. Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy hand, and high is thy right hand. Well, who do you think he's talking about here? Again, this is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ. He is at the right hand of God. This is something that we we start seeing these connections and we start seeing. But as he says here very clearly, it's a mighty arm. The Lord is mighty. Jesus Christ is mighty. Why? Because they are one and the same. You cannot separate them. And we find that this is, you know, again, a reference to him. Because take a look over at Matthew chapter 11. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 11. And let's take a look at a couple of passages uh, in Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11, uh, Jesus Christ is, is, is talking about some things. And in Matthew chapter um, 11, uh, and we'll, let's start in verse 20. Uh, it, he, he, it says here, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. That is a very, very disturbing verse. God demonstrates mighty works and they still will not turn to him. They still will not turn to him. What mighty work did Nineveh see that 120,000 people turned to the Lord? They saw somebody that probably smelled like the inside of a whale. Might have had a little bit of a skin problem going on there. But uh, for the most part, what mighty work did the, those Gentiles need to see? Nothing other than a few words. A few words. And here's the Lord, here's Jesus Christ. What is he doing? He's doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. You know, people today, they pray for a miracle. And I'm like... But will that still increase your faith? Will, will, will that, will that cause you to believe more? Will, will, will that, will that draw you near? You know, you get the individuals, you know, that are unsaved and they, 
they want to curse God and they say, well, I want to pray, you know, I'm going to pray to God and God's going to do some miracle and then that's going to prove it. They still won't believe. Go back to the rich man, Lazarus. Begging and pleading, send Lazarus back. What does Abraham say? They won't believe even though one raised from the dead. Well, there was a Lazarus that was raised from the dead. They still had a hard time, but Abraham wasn't necessarily referring to Lazarus. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. People still don't believe. Still won't believe. Still will not repent. In verse 21, he says, Woe unto thee, uh, Chazarin, uh, woe unto thee, uh, Bethsidia, for uh, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Think about that for a second. Tyre and Sidon, those places were sacked, and they continue to get sacked. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. One of the, Sidon, one of the last times it got sacked was when Israel went in and just blew the place apart. Because it was a, kind of, if you will, a storehouse for terrorists. I mean, that's, that's something that's pretty, pretty scary to think about. But they leveled the place. Each time they try to build it up, it gets leveled again. It's leveled again, gets leveled again. Tyre and Sidon, they've got some pretty strong punishment because of their wickedness. But what does he say here? If those works had been done that he was doing, they would have repented. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And again, he, he, he says, but I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon the day of judgment than for you. I, uh, uh. And he says, and thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. I want you to think about that for a second. We think about Sodom and Gomorrah getting pounded into the ground by hellfire and brimstone. Now, when we think about that and think about what they were doing and their themselves being lifted up with pride, because that was the, that was the sin of Sodom was pride. Let's just think about that for a moment and then we'll move on. But right there, pride issue. God doesn't like pride. He hates it. It's an abomination to him. We have to understand that. Doesn't like it in our lives. Doesn't like it in the life of anyone. So we have to eliminate it. We have to get rid of it. But here's the interesting thing. If he had done these works in that place, Sodom would have repented. Think about that for a second. Sodom, who we often think of as if you want one of the most wicked places, they would have turned. These places wouldn't. 
Now, I say this and point this out because, again, when we start seeing what the, the, what's going on here, and, and again, we can turn over to Matthew chapter 13 and, and see again um, uh, where he talks about in Matthew chapter 13 and in verse 58, again, similar situation, similar uh, phraseology. And it says in verse 58, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So there was a place where he just didn't do mighty works. There's a place where he did do mighty works and they didn't believe. And then he didn't do mighty works because they wouldn't believe. Here's God with his mighty works and the things that he can do. And people will still turn away from it. But we as believers, when we see the might of God in his mighty hand, one of the things that we should do is always turn to him. Turn to him. What does it say over there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6? They sing it in basic. What is it? Humble yourselves, therefore, unto the what? Mighty hand of God. Mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Well, what does it require? Humbleness. Now, when you think about this for a second, this is why when we think about Jesus Christ and we think about his might, we think about his power and think about his strength and think about his ability and what he can do and what he has done and what he has promised to do. We need to humble ourselves. It would do a Christian much, much, much benefit to you, if you will, do a fasting of the mind. Stop thinking about everything else and just think only on Christ for a while. And that's a hard thing to do, right? That's a hard thing to do. You know, you go to the Lord in prayer, you've got some prayer time set aside. How frequently does your mind just kind of go, ooh, wander away? And then you're like, wait a second, I'm praying. Smack ourselves. Get back at it. Mind wanders. You're reading the Bible, and the next thing you know is it's like starts thinking about something else. You got to bring that thing into captivity. It likes to wander. I saw a t-shirt that somebody was wearing one time and it said, don't let your mind wander. It's too small and feeble and frail to be left alone or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. I'm going to say amen to that. You know, it it shouldn't be out there on its own. No, we need the mind of Christ. We need the mind of Christ. And we realize here these works that are being done One of the reasons that mighty works are done is to help us with our belief and for us to turn to the Lord. So when we see the mighty works that God does in our life, in the life of a believer, that should draw us so much closer to the Lord. I'll close with this. Go over to uh, um, uh, 2 Corinthians (laughs) I'll get it out one of these days. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Well-known passage. Well-known passage. And here's Paul 
realizing he can't get rid of a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh. And people are talking about, well, it may be physical, it may be spiritual. You know, I like the fact that the Lord left it vague on purpose. Because you could put anything in there. You could put anything. Could be your job. Could be a health condition. Could be your spouse. Could be your children. <laughs> could, could be a friend. Could be a circumstance, a situation. Could be anything. Could be a spiritual battle. Could be something that we, there's no way we're going to get victory. And here this is as he talks about a messenger of Satan to buffet him in verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. What does that mean? That there was something that was allowed to make sure that Paul stayed humble. That Paul stayed humble. Because as he said, if you want to talk about boasting, he said as far as touching the law, he was what? Blameless. Blameless. Can you say that? When you were driving here, did you stay exactly at that speed limit? (laughs) Did you use your blinker every single time you made a lane change? Yeah. So guess what? We're not blameless. You know, we think about that. Paul says, yep, I turned my camel signal on every time I was moving. I made sure I came to a complete stop and that camel stopped. Waited for all the rest of the livestock to move by before I moved my camel. You know, he he was, you know, those things in the law, he, he said he was blameless. But he also admitted that he had violated God's law. Because he had lusted, coveted. As it says, sin revived and he died. Sin slew him when he realized what he had done. Just like Adam. And here we are looking at this here in this passage and he's being humbled. In verse 8 it says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. So whatever it was, it was pretty vexing to him. Whatever it was, was was weighing really heavy on him to go to the Lord three times and say, Lord, I I need this gone. I need this gone. And God's response is this. In verse 9, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, we are weak. We're weak. As I said the other day, you locked me in a room full of, you know, with a bowl full of jelly beans. There's just going to be a bowl left. <laughs> it's just the way it's going to work, okay? You know, again, you, with the Oreos that we just talked about, bar of chocolate, whatever it is, bag of potato chips, whatever your little vice is, right, you know? But we're weak with those things. We're weak in the flesh. And we're weak spiritually. And that's why we need Jesus Christ. That's why we need the relationship. That's why we need the Word of God. As He is called, and as we have right here. Why? 
Because we bring him glory when we're weak. When we're humble. And when we say, Lord, I need you. I need you. Desperately. And he makes it very clear here. And the rest of the verse says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory, not glory for himself, but glory for the Lord, in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I still have a hard time with the very first one, taking pleasure in infirmities. Yeah. Let's deal with that health issue a little bit later. We'll just move on on that one. I don't want to get too convicted, right? You know? But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. But, but let's understand something. The might of God is about bringing glory to who He is. Jesus Christ demonstrated that. And we are to do the same. We're to trust in His might. We're, we're, we're not doing this on our own. We're not, we're not gonna be like, you know, what he said over there with Israel. Well, I did this on my own. Look at what I've built. Look at what I've done. You know what that is? That's a humanistic mentality that's found over in, uh, the book of Genesis and specifically Genesis chapter 10. Let us build a tower to heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. You know, that's the real Babylonian religion, right? Humanism. You go back over there, Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon is all about humanism. Humanism, humanism, humanism. When we start seeing that on a day-to-day basis in our own lives, it's not about what we've done. We get all braggadocious about whatever it is we've accomplished, and the next thing you know is the Lord goes, Oh, okay. You did that all on your own? Mm. Okay. Well, I guess you can handle the next one then, right? <laughs> there's, and then there's the, the, uh, the Peter prayer. Lord, save me. <laughs> you know, crying out from the whale's belly in Jonah chapter 2. Mm-hmm. And we realize that uh, we need him. We need that might. We need that strength. We need that power. We need that ability. Uh-huh. It's very, very, very clear uh, in scriptures. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. And uh, um, uh, Brother Mike Perry, would you dismiss us in a word of prayer, please?